Welcome to Collier's Talks, a podcast series featuring the latest trends, insights, research, and developments in commercial real estate in Canada and beyond. Welcome to Collier's Talks. I'm Colin Worrell, Managing Director of Collier's International's Montreal and Quebec offices. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be able to host this episode alongside our leader and Collier's Canadian CEO, Brian Rosen. Brian, how are you today? I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you, Colin. How are you? I'm well, too. Not, not every Collier's Talks episode has the benefit of having our leader aboard, so thanks for being here. Uh, for me, this co- podcast is even more exciting because of the guests we get to sit and chat with. Uh, you know this, Brian, but I share with our listeners that prior to coming to Collier's just over 18 months ago, I spent almost eight wonderful years with an industry disruptor that made thinking out of the box part of their culture. And the organization I'm talking about is Allied REIT. Uh, Just for a little context, Allied has been a dominant force in developing what was once thought of as non-traditional office space. Um, And through the repurposing of older light industrial structures, Allied really has created a portfolio of sought after created spaces that's occupied by some of the world's most notable creative and knowledge-based tenants. Over the last decade or so, that loft-style office subgroup has become really a significant portion of office inventory here in Canada. So uh, I've been witness in my tenure there to some of the most creative and out-of-the-box thinking that has led to Allied success. So Brian, for me to share a conversation today with you and Allied's leaders is truly a treat. I'll let you into make the introductions. Great. Well, I mean, the, the two gentlemen we're speaking with uh, really don't need introductions, but uh, it's always good to just uh, say who's on the phone and who's doing what here. So uh, I'll just do a very quick introduction. Uh, we have Michael Emery. He's the founder and president and chief executive officer for Allied. Uh, prior to entering the real estate business in 1988, he was a partner at the law firm of uh, Aird & Berlis LLP, specializing in corporate and real estate finance. He's also a director of Equitable Group Incorporated and Equitable Bank. Also joining uh, Mr. Emery is Tom Burns, who is the executive vice president and chief operating officer since 2011. He was formerly senior vice president retail at DTZ. Yes, I'm American originally, not DTZ. Uh, DTZ Barnicky, as well as a member of DTZ's global management committee. During his 35-year career, Thomas distinguished himself in the areas of commercial leasing, operations, and development. And he's a business administration graduate of Algonquin College, specializing in real estate. Welcome, gentlemen. Delighted to be here. So, uh, you know, I could give a little background of, of Allied. I actually would prefer if you guys did, but but first, I want to I want to open this up. So so you know, Michael, you've built Allied uh, with with your team, um, but with you as the as the visionary on, I would say, a distinct set of tenants. So can you, you know, talk to us about some of those tenants? How did these become your guiding criteria for how you how you uh, created Allied and how you've built Allied over the years? Well, you know, we were fortunate, actually. Uh, we started the business in the late 1980s. Um, and we didn't realize it at the time, but we were at the tail end of an extraordinary real estate boom. And for about 12 or 18 months, we actually did really well. Everything we bought became more valuable. Every lease transaction we completed was for a higher level of net rent than anticipated. Um, And I uh, I thought I was a budding real estate genius. What I very quickly learned, however, Uh, is that the market was about to collapse, and it did in the early 1990s. Uh, And the collapse was profound, as as many of the listeners will know, and and some perhaps not. Um, Just as about 3 million square feet of office space came onto the Toronto market, demand plummeted, vacancy went to about 27 to 30% almost overnight, and net rents really declined to zero and actually went below zero to negative net. Uh, So all of a sudden, I realized that I had mistaken a bull market for brains, uh, and that really I was in for a long, difficult ride, 
through a period of recession that felt almost like a depression. Uh, and indeed, some people referred to it as a real estate depression. That, though, was valuable because that's when we learned how to run real estate for real uh, in a very adverse environment. And we had one very fortunate experience in the first five years of the 90s, which was that our brick and beam buildings held up really well. The storefront retail was solid and the office above those storefronts held up during the pandemic, sorry, not during the pandemic, during the recession. Um, we were always able to generate respectable levels of net rent and we were able to keep the buildings full. And this is contrasted with what was going on in the towers with 30% vacancy and negative net rents. Um, and we tried to figure out why this was happening because it wasn't obvious. Um, and as we thought about it, we realized there were three things that were allowing us to outperform the market, even though we were relative novices. Number one, the proximity to the core. That was important. That was one of the reasons those buildings stayed full. Number two, the distinctive internal and external attributes of those buildings attracted a fairly high caliber of tenant uh, who wanted that kind of space to attract, motivate, and retain their most valuable resources, their employees, their knowledge workers, as a matter of fact. And then finally, we realized that the taxes and operating costs were about 850 a foot compared to 25 or so in the towers. That allowed us to lease out at 20 bucks, keep around 12, uh, whereas the towers were basically leasing out at around 20 bucks and losing five uh, per foot yeah. every year. Um, so it was that threefold value proposition, proximity to the core, distinctive internal and external attributes and lower overall operating costs that were those became the tenets of our business uh, we've got to be part of the core but we don't have to be right in it uh, we've got to have distinctive environments that will help our users attract motivate and retain these incredibly talented and valuable knowledge workers and we got to be available at lower overall cost. Um, th those were the tenets on which the business uh, has been built subsequently. Um, they've been expanded, of course, uh, but that's really the foundation. And that continues to this day to define more or less our investment and operating, if you will, mission. Uh, or rationale or focus. And um, to this day, we now have, I think, around 150 properties in six cities, uh, and they all have those attributes. So one of the things that always interests me when, 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 when companies have a very specific value proposition and they stick to it and they adhere to it, the conflict of of seeing something else that's really interesting and valuable and wonderful but it goes against what you stand for. How have you managed that that trade-off over the years? Because I've seen so many companies, I've been part of companies that have uh, lost that focus uh, uh, subtly or uh, in a large degree because they start moving towards uh, um, something of, of high value because it's just a good investment to make in general. But it starts to stray you from your value proposition and suddenly become generic. How have you guys managed that in, internally and externally in terms of balancing that trade-off of, man, it's just a good building to buy versus it's an allied building to buy? Well, I, I like to say we're, we're not very smart, so we just <laughs> stick to what we know and what we understand. But in reality, um, I think the public company discipline that we're subject to um, has actually rewarded us for remaining focused, has rewarded us for not becoming seduced, if you will, by other opportunities, but always having an operating rationale for what we buy. So if you're simply an acquisitor of things, 
um, you're really a private equity firm. And private equity can do marvelous things, as, as we know, in real estate. Um, they really are traders in real estate, whereas we are an operator. So it's the operating focus that I think has kept us true to our original vision for the business. Obviously, uh, the vision has to evolve with changing circumstances with time, uh, but we see ourselves as an operator. So we don't acquire for acquisition's sake. We don't develop for development's sake. We do those things if and only if they'll make us a better, stronger operator. If they won't, we're not interested in doing them. One thing that's been helpful to us is there's an inventory of heritage structures in Canada that has allowed us to grow in different geographies. You know, downtown Vancouver has a, a number of heritage buildings. No city has more than downtown Montreal. Um, and we actually have more office space in Montreal than we do in Toronto uh, because the opportunities have been there. It's interesting. Uh, I do remember, uh, Michael, you saying we do one thing, we do it well. And, uh, and, and, and you've expanded on that over the years, of course. And that's exactly what we're interested in talking about, I think, as throughout this, this conversation, really about the way that you've been creative and looked outwards uh, and created um, a, a larger scope on that particular focus of, uh, of uh, repurposing space, so to speak. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, my first day on the job with you in 2012. I remember that clearly, and I'm not, I'm not sure whether you all do, but uh, but I met you at De Gaspe, a set of buildings that you bought in Montreal, and you were coming back from meeting a consortium of artists that had been displaced initially from one building and were then relocated to the building you were then acquiring, and uh, they were concerned that they would be displaced again and reached out to the borough and and, and they put in place a moratorium on leasing. And, and uh, so this was my first time that I was sitting with you all and you came back from that meeting and, uh, and your response to the situation was really surprising. And I'd love to hear you uh, tell your memory of that. And, and of course your response to it, because I think it, it, it speaks volumes and it speaks about then my experiences with you throughout the years afterwards. Well, I'll, I'll let Tom do that, but I'll set the stage. Um, because it was kind of interesting. Tom just joined us when we bought the first of the two de Gaspe properties. And I remember we went to 5505 Saint Laurent together, which is a beautiful brick and beam building occupied in its entirety by Ubisoft. And so we went through this stunning brick and beam building, which had become our trademark, if you will. Then we walked around the corner to see these buildings for the first time. We we hadn't bought them, but we were. Do you remember what you said at the time? I do. I do. I said those. That is the ugliest, sorry, building I have ever <laughs> seen. Um, and Tom kind of laughed, but but also looked a little bit dismayed. But he and I lived that entire adventure together, and particularly the part you mentioned, Paul. And so Tom, take it away. What what became a potential big problem, you know, we, we turned it into something special. So the artist community is very established in Myland. We're told there's more artists uh, concentrated there than any other place in Canada. And so the artists learned that, gee, this English speaking Toronto based company is acquiring these buildings, we're going to be kicked out of our space. And so they lobbied the, the borough who immediately uh, put an interim bylaw in place preventing us from leasing space greater than 5,000 square feet to a conventional tenant, which was completely opposite of what we needed. We needed to take advantage of the large floor plates in the building by leasing big chunks at a time. And at first we thought, well, this isn't legal. How, how can the city do this or the borough do this? But they could and they did. So we thought, how do we deal with this? We learned that the artist had a footprint of around 200,000 square feet in these two buildings, paying very low rent, getting by week to week, month to month. And we decided, actually it was Michael's idea, why don't we accommodate the artists 
and give them a spot for their future. We'll do a really long-term, low-rent deal and accommodate this group, and let's see what then happens. So we took that notion to actually the mayor, and they thought, wow, you guys are amazing. We never thought that you would do that. We thought that you'd displace all these artists, but instead you're embracing them. And so we did this deal uh, to accommodate, I think it was 212,000 square feet of artists representing around 500 artists uh, in this collective. And we found that conventional office tenants wanted to rub shoulders with the artists. So they actually became a tool for us in leasing space. Uh, Ubisoft came along, wanted to be near the artists and took big chunks of space. We even leased the top floor in one of the buildings to Sun Life Financial. So here's an insurance company, super conservative, uh, wanting to be in the building because the artists were there. So what turned in, the, the, the outcome was fantastic. It started off as a, oh my goodness, how are we gonna deal with this? But a very creative idea, let's accommodate these people and, and just see what happens. It, it was awesome. And we maintain good relations with the artists today. Um, it's been a super success for us. Yeah, that, that was really great. And it, I think that uh, certainly uh, let me know that I was I was at the right company at the right time, absolutely, with the right leader. So, so really enjoyed that. I thought your response was akin to the martial art Aikido, where you know somebody protects its, itself, itself by redirecting energy with concern for the well-being of the attacker. It's really a, a neat martial art, and, and you kind of pulled that that there. So, and and I've been part of, of course, creative responses and, and initiatives time and time again while I was at Allied. Uh, that that's that's exactly what we want to talk about in this ex episode. And so, wondering, how will that approach uh, help Allied as we exit the pandemic? Uh, you know, how how will that uh, help you position yourself uh, again, creative, out of the box, uh, thinking that's surprising. Well, I th think uh, it's how we operate, how we function. Uh, I think our response to the pandemic called for creativity on our part. Um, in the context of a market where the outlook for what we provide um, is in question. Uh, so the, the first bit of both restraint and creativity we needed was to contend with the fact that many in the investment community thought the longer term outlook for office space was negative uh, because more and more people would be working from home on a permanent basis. The first thing we had to do there in terms of being creative was not engage in a debate because we were all living in a surreal environment. There was actually no data to support any proposition. I mean, we happened to be able to work from home in a crisis, but based on that, people were speculating that the entire world would work from home forever, and it was rank speculation. If I was to come back and say, no, no, everybody's coming back, it'll all be fine, First of all, it's obvious I would say that. Secondly, um, I have no data to support that proposition either. So what we did um, is we articulated our expectation, but we got ourselves back into the real world as soon as we could and started paying very close attention to what people were actually doing rather than what they were saying. And as we did that, the data started to mount and accumulate and support the proposition that indeed most people value a collaborative work environment in an amenity rich part of an urban place, whether it's Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver. Um, so you know, we, we, we almost had to be creative in terms of 
explaining what we thought was going to happen and the basis for our thinking and acknowledging that we don't yet have the data either to predict. Um, I, I wrote a thesis, which we sort of disseminated, which really, I think, established three propositions. And they are, A, the pandemic is actually going to accelerate urban intensification going forward, not the converse. B, um, the pandemic is going to propel more humanistic approaches to providing space, which by the way, were clearly evolving pre-pandemic and clearly valued pre-pandemic by users and providers. And then third, um, the pandemic actually crisis conditioned the next generation of leadership in our, in our industry. Um, I went through it, as I mentioned, in the first half of the 1990s. Uh, the global financial crisis wasn't a big test for Canadian real estate. I mean, we had two quarters where things looked dicey and then we just continued to, to run on an upward trend, um, as you know. Uh, but this crisis, this conditioned the next generation of leaders because you can't know what it's like to have the bottom fall out of a business uh, until you've lived it. You can't learn this academically. You can't learn this by word of mouth. You simply have to feel it. And the pandemic took the bottom out of everything. Now, we all responded and, and recovered rapidly, but for a period of time, it literally took the bottom out of everything. Um, and, um, and it was a severe test and, and it was a longer test as well. I mean, it, it's a year and a half and, and, and still going. So, um, so I, I think, I actually think as we come out of the pandemic, the kind of creativity that we've practiced is going to be more in demand than it was pre-pandemic. Um, and now again, I don't assert that categorically. That's my thesis. Only time and human behavior will, will determine whether I'm right, wrong, partially right, partially wrong, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the pandemic made creativity more important for survival. Um, yep. We have a tenant, uh, a user um, in the retail space. It's a pizza place. What these guys did during the pandemic was brilliant. They converted themselves from a restaurant to a frozen pizza maker. And their stuff got distributed all over uh, the greater Toronto area in huge quantities. They probably did better during the pandemic than they would have in normal <laughs> circumstances. Creativity, and I, you know, we, we've been, we've been practicing creativity through the pandemic in an effort to come to grips with the implications of the pandemic. But it's, I think it's a survival necessity at all times. Uh, if, if, you, if you can't practice ongoing creativity, someone else will and will beat you, period, full stop. And that's true in our industry like every other one. The other thing is, I think we're, poised to come out from the pandemic in great shape when the bottom fell out of the market last march or march 2020 april 2020 there were no tours taking place leasing activity came to a halt and we decided we needed to turn up the heat on our leasing team and turn up the heat on all of our broker relationships and aggressively pursue every possible deal out there to maintain momentum. Well, we generated momentum and it turned out in 2020, we did 258 transactions. 103 of them were with new tenants to the portfolio. Wow. Our guys were working constantly uh, right through. We just are completing our numbers for Q2 of this year and we completed 98 transactions in Q2. 
A lot of our investors have chosen to stay at home and we know we're doing deals because we're at work. Uh, so we're going to come up with momentum. Momentum is everything in business. If you don't have momentum, it's hard to restart. And that effort produced great results for us. Yeah. No, it's, um, <clears throat> I mean, I couldn't agree more on so many points, what you're talking about. The, uh, uh, you know, 2008, great, the great financial crisis. Uh, so I was moving to Canada at that point in time. And one of the things that I saw, the difference between the U.S., how they came out of that in, in, in Canada in, in a variety of sectors, uh, uh, not just uh, real estate, is in the U.S. it became innovate or die for a lot of particularly banks, thousands of banks in the U.S., all the regionals, locals, et cetera. Canada, they, they didn't get hit by the subprime nearly as, as, as badly as the U.S., uh, minimally in, in a lot of regards, and were able to just continue doing what they were doing. Uh, and then in the U.S., it was if they didn't innovate, there wasn't going to be a bank anymore in a lot of cases. And so when they when they emerged in 09 and 10, the investment and the acceleration of some of their uh, uh, innovation and their digital technology and things like that, it was night and day between Canada. I think during this pandemic, we're seeing the banking sector catch up in some regards a little bit more there. But but I agree with you. You have to innovate in, in, the, in the cause of that. And, and, and you have to continue to grow art our two of our best years have been post uh, meltdowns, right? Uh, so this year we did the exact same approach. We had our people on the street aggressively calling and moving out there. And so your, your strategy is one I, I, I completely am aligned with. And uh, hopefully you guys are getting a bunch of cold calls from us too. But anyway, the uh, uh, it's, it's, it's when you, when you come out of uh, one of these periods, you mentioned innovation. I want, I want to uh, pivot a little bit here um, and we'll, we'll be fluid. We'll get, go back and forth on some of these is, you know, in times of when things start getting back to normal, or if you start seeing renewed activity and traditional uh, behavior, some of the things that make progress stall. So one of the things I think was making progress actually pre-pandemic and then actually accelerated was a lot of ESG stuff. Um, and, and I say stuff, it's broad category, both from environmental to diversity, social impact, et cetera. Um, particularly last year, a lot of the social impact with a lot of the uh, uh, cultural uh, things going on in, in the U.S. in particular, but also in Canada. How do you see that progressing at Allied? So Allied, you have a lot of forward thinking tenants, a lot of people on the on the cutting edge that are thinking about uh, uh, some of these social issues uh, to a large degree. How has that been impacted for you guys during the pandemic, some of the uh, the ESG uh, um, categories? Well, again, the interesting thing about that is ESG had taken on importance in our world long before the pandemic. And in fact, what is probably most encouraging to all of us in the world today is the fact that institutional investors are demanding that public entities adopt better ESG practices. Um, and that is a very broad category, but the thinking about what ESG constitutes, how to measure it, um, is really evolving uh, in a significant and meaningful way. And we first started feeling this pressure, if you will, from European investors, probably five years ago. And Canadian, American, um, and Asian investors weren't far behind, but I've, I've got to give Europe the nod, at least as real estate investors, for pushing this first. And uh, it's been adopted worldwide. Institutional investors have found that there's a positive correlation between companies with better ESG practices and better returns. So they're not simply demanding this um, in an effort to help the world, they're demanding it because um, if a company doesn't have these better ESG practices, they're less likely to be a successful uh, and high yielding or high return enterprise. Um, so it's very interesting when the money goes this way, then the results go this way. And Funny how that works. Yeah. <laughs> What's so encouraging to me, the, the, the pools of capital in the world are demanding this of public entities. Um, and of course, by implication, other entities as well, because private equity serves institutional capital pools 
Um, and so you, you, you don't really get away from it. We believe in it deeply. Uh, we have started formally to submit ourselves to scrutiny with respect to our ESG practices last year. And just so you know, um, it's probably one of the few times in my life where I was pleased to get what amounts to a C grade. Um, it was a start uh, and it basically helped us understand where we were doing well and where we really needed to improve. Someone asked me recently when I hope or when I expect to become an A student, I think it's a three to five year um, time frame at least in order to get to the point where we're submitting to scrutiny uh, in a manner that is acceptable to our constituents and where we're measuring um, in meaningful ways um, our ESG performance. Um, and, and it'll take three to five years to get where we want to go. Um, and I'm actually excited about the journey. Um, it really is difficult, but it makes you a better business. No question. And Michael, although you're, you're talking about being able to measure to some extent, I think even initially, innately, there were some qualities that were not being measured initially, but still in line with that 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 concept that that way of thinking really uh, in terms of building uh spaces that from a humanistic nature that were intended as much for the user as for you know towards the end of of what the investor needed right so uh so interesting in that in that regard uh and maybe you can talk a little bit about that uh from you know the initial uh, you know approach of that on king west because i think you built some buildings there and, and a community there that was really intended to serve its, you know, the, the folks that, that occupy that and the community around it and that sort of thing. Yeah, it is interesting. And I do feel that sensitivity to the environment and sensitivity to our communities was inherent in what we did from the beginning. We didn't do it to serve the environment and, and we didn't do it initially to serve the community. But the, if you will, the byproduct of what we were doing was actually good for the environment and did serve the broader community. Uh, the environment, uh, I think, was served because we recycled buildings rather than building new ones. And that absolutely reduced the amount of carbon um, per square foot that that would have been emitted had we had we built them new. So that recycling, uh, in a way, we you know evolved into more sensitivity toward the environment. Again, when we we tended to concentrate our ownership in neighborhoods, as you met King Spadina being one of the earliest and and most dramatic illustrations of that, and that kind of made us sensitive to the impact of what we were doing on the community at large. And, and again, uh, as I say, we, we didn't set out to, to sort of have that impact, but by preserving older buildings, maintaining human scale, and as you say, thinking about the users of not only the building environment, but the surrounding neighborhoods, and thinking in that context, it did sensitize us to the community. So when it came time to actually develop, we were very comfortable with the fact that we had to please the community, or at least we had to get the support, the informed support of the community in order to develop what we wanted to develop. Um, so I think this was inherent in our, in our business. Um, and it's now what we need to do is make it more manifest, uh, more explicit, and we need to measure ourselves. It's one thing to say, I recycled the building, well, okay, what did that do for the environment? There is actually a way to measure that. Um, and, and, um, and, and so we need, to, we need to become, in a way, more rigorous in terms of how we, uh, how we pursue what was inherent in our business from the beginning, which, which I think is great. I, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be a wonderful, enriching exercise for our team and ultimately for our unit holders. We've added millions of square feet of office inventory without cranes. 
if you think about it. Hmm. Yeah, they used to they used to refer to 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 what we were doing as the invisible cranes because we were we actually created a million square feet of space in downtown Toronto through adaptive reuse at a time when everybody said no new office space was being created. And it like it's almost like people didn't well yeah, but that doesn't count. <laughs> it was like that's not real office space because it's not vertical and because, you know, as Tom said, cranes aren't needed. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting how this has evolved. It, it, speaking of wonderfully enriching uh, experiences, I think it'd be useful to, interesting to dive into a couple of these strategic uh, plays that you've made and some of your, some of your notable properties within your portfolio, uh, because I think the story behind them uh, would really benefit uh, a lot of people to understand. I mean, just what you talked about there, creating usable adaptive reuse. What a wonderful concept. It's not new to the world, but being able to execute on that uh, in a compelling way consistently over and over again. Um, I think I think there's some story there. So so Colin, I mean, you know this, you know their their portfolio uh, uh, as well as as well as anyone uh, outside the allied business. Um, so why don't, why don't you, uh, you pick one of the, one of the ones to start with and, and, and fling one over the, over the fence for them. Absolutely. Man. Let me, let me shoot a couple at you and either of you can, can, can answer, tell us a little bit about the compelling story and evolution of one of these properties. I, I know some of them, some of them I'm not so well versed in, but, uh, but be interesting to hear from you. So first of all, I'm a Montreal boy. So how about CDM? I know one of your biggest uh acquisitions early on in montreal so cdm and for those who aren't aware of cdm that's city de Mo uh, multimedia so multimedia city in montreal well that was an interesting one tom you, you, you uh, i i joined allied at a time where that complex of, of properties was in transition and there was quite a bit of vacancy but the initial acquisition of city multimedia was a very bold move for Allied at the time. It, it represented a meaningful um, chunk of, of our assets in one, in one fell swoop at a time when government subsidies were ending for the tenants in the complex. And those in Montreal in the real estate business thought, boy, these guys from Toronto, they're nuts. Look what they're doing. Well. City Multimedia today is highly leased. It's in great shape. Uh, it's It's been a phenomenal 1 million square feet of office space for us in Montreal. And we did it when nobody else had the confidence to do it. Large floor plates, loads of parking on the fringe of the city, part of old Montreal, interesting architecture, uh, had lots of, lots of elements that attracted to us that were attractive to us at the time and still are attractive today. That's great. Okay, let's jump to another one. And here's one that, again, went sort of outside of the initial focus, but clearly is something that you're uh, renowned for now. The, the, the data hub play in downtown Toronto, 151 Front and 250 Front Street as well. Well, I'll tell you the story about that. And, you know, I was thinking as Tom was talking about City Multimedia and some of the other things we've done, um, I've learned that you, you know you've done a really good deal when the armchair quarterbacks dump on your head from a great height uh, <laughs> because invariably they're wrong. And it's, I almost get comfort from it. And certainly at 151 Front, um, the world asked itself, quite rightly, what is Allied thinking? And here's how this evolved. It, and it was a good example, I think, of creative thinking. Uh, RBC Capital Markets, not to mention a competitor, but, but I have to acknowledge, they brought this opportunity to us. It was owned by a fund. The fund was nearing the end of its life and it needed to be sold. RBC brought it to us primarily because we were perceived to be weird and to do weird things. So maybe this weird thing would somehow be attractive to us. And I'm forever grateful to, th to them for bringing it to us. 
Um, and interestingly, it was kind of the same vendor as the vendor of City Multimedia. So we, we were known to and had credibility in the eyes of the vendor. So they brought it to us. And as you know, it's an internet hub. It's one of eight internet hubs in North America. It's the only internet hub in Canada. Um, and it, it provides in a way a massive interconnection facility for the telecoms who connect to one another, and then a galaxy of internet service providers, co-locators, managed service providers that sort of connect to the hub, give it density. Um, so we were beginning to understand what it did um, and why it generated high levels of net rent on a per square foot basis. But what really made it work for us is when we began to think about the fact that our buildings, and at the time we had 63 buildings east and west of Toronto's core. I think we have 85 now, but we had 63 then. Those buildings were really great at accommodating people, as you mentioned, Colin. I mean, they really were, and that's why they were largely occupied, and that's why the rent continued to go up. They were really not good at accommodating sophisticated equipment needs. So our thinking was, as an operating rationale, if we can help people accommodate their equipment needs at this facility and then connect them almost at our cost back to our 63 buildings fiber optically, uh, that may differentiate us in certain circumstances with certain tenants, not with all tenants, but with some. We're getting close on time here. Um, and so uh, I wanted to make sure that we, we we could have a proper wrap up. I mean, there there is there's a, a ton of of other properties, obviously, that we would love to. We could spend three hours talking about these, you know, from the Nordelec to the well. Um, that's part. That's part two, Brian. Part two. There we go. Um, you know, I think maybe maybe give us uh, a a real. I, I think the Massey Hall restoration is touching on the art story from the beginning. Uh, maybe give us a real short one on that one. I think that's a really interesting uh, story uh, uh, to hear about, and then then we can we can we can come to to wrap this thing up. You should do that. All right. Well, that was that was a very interesting opportunity that came to us, um, and it came to us because we're perceived to be an organization that uh, is very sensitive to history, um, that values history. Uh, and it came to us also um, because we're an organization that has, uh, if you will, made an effort to make room for the arts. Uh, Colin's story being, you know, the largest scale example of our doing that, but it's not the only instance of our doing that. And we thought the opportunity to be affiliated if you will, with a brand as iconic and as significant as Massey Hall would be wonderful for us. And it really was a threefold value proposition to us. One, we were contributing to the community that has uh, allowed us to do so much and, and to generate so much profit for the benefit of our unit holders. So certainly, Part of it was giving back. We also felt it would enrich or inform our brand. And we also know that it will allow us again to differentiate ourselves a bit with our users because there are certain benefits we derive from, um, from the relationship. And we're going to pass those benefits through to our tenants, the ability to get to the front of the line, uh, the ability to to attend uh, events at no cost. And, and, and we're gonna try to make those available to our tenants. Um, and then the last thing is, this is a national undertaking. Massey Hall is of course a Toronto-based brand, although I believe it's a national brand, but they want an outreach program across the country. And so we're gonna help with that. Uh, on a, a for-profit basis, if you will, with ways that they can they can reach out to the artistic community in Montreal, 
in Calgary, in Vancouver, and elsewhere in the country. And we want to accommodate that. We want to assist them uh, in doing that. So it, it really it really is something we are excited about. It has both a business rationale and a community or social rationale that is compelling to us. And, and as I say, we feel very proud of the association. I mean, what the restoration they're doing there is stunning. The addition of a new building um, at the back and integrating it with the restored heritage structure is kind of right up our alley. It is what we believe in, what we do. And um, so I, I, I think we're a good fit for Massey Hall and Massey Hall is certainly a great fit for us. I know we need to wrap it up, but I wanted to ask Tom a question here, and I hope you don't mind if I read, but first of all, Michael has never shied away from providing clarity with respect to his position on issues germane to commercial real estate and com the commercial real estate industry. In a recent article in The Globe, he was quoted as saying, I, and I'm reading here, I am dumbfounded by the lack of leadership from the chartered banks. They need to find a backbone. Tom, maybe you can tell us how has that clarity of thought distinguished allied from other landlords? That's just one example. There's, there's, I, I get a front row seat. I happen to sit beside Michael, so I get a front row seat uh, to listen to Michael every day, and it's constant. Um, he's always ahead of the curve. And what he was doing there was a little bit more bold than he would ordinarily be uh, by making the statement about the banks needing to establish a backbone. Uh, but I see examples all the time of Michael thinking out of the box, dealing with problems in a creative way, um, forming relationships with partners that are complementary to us, maintaining those relationships. Um, it's something he does naturally. Most everybody else finds it difficult. He does it in a routine manner. That's great. I mean, having, having a point of view uh, you know, on something as a leader, uh, you know, I, it is so critical. And, and it's, some, it's sometimes hard to navigate, um, you know, because uh, there is always, as you, you mentioned, you make a, a, big, a bold move and you're going to have all the critics come in and say you did wrong. And for every instance, that you make a, a decision, a comment, whatever, there's always a, another side that's going to say it's wrong. So having the courage of the convictions, it's it's great. I mean, you know, we happen to have uh, Jay Hennick here as well, who has a uh, similar conviction in his uh, in his beliefs. And uh, it's it's a it's a it's a privilege to, to be able to to have that. So uh, we, we appreciate strong, strong. Uh, uh, it, 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 it's similar to sticking by your value proposition, thick and thin. Right. It's I believe this is right for the business. I believe this is right for, I'm going to speak up and advocate for as such. So uh, thank you. Appreciate that. So, so Colin, why don't you take us home here? We're at the, we're at the end there. I think we could have continued this for a while, but, but uh, yeah. I think at, at some point oh, we'll, we'll lose the listeners at some point. You know, so <laughs> We will, uh, we will. And you're absolutely right. We, we do have to wrap up. One of my questions was going to be what's on the horizon. However, what's noted is that I saw a press release this morning that made a major announcement here in Montreal about an acquisition. Uh, so as we wrap up, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Uh, and then we'll we'll move off and let people do what they're doing. Well, we're thrilled to be part of Plasque RVJ, um, as of this morning, I guess, announced. It is an extraordinary transformation that the Justa Group has achieved there. Uh, they took one of the finest heritage structures in this country, the Chateau, as you know, um, and have turned it into a marvelous office retail environment. And then they've basically created uh, a mixed use environment with, with hotel, residential, and a new office building uh, under construction. Uh, so we'll ultimately acquire the urban office component of that larger complex. Just a group will retain the residential and hotel components, but it's it's an integrated place with a magnificent courtyard. And as I say, Justa has done a brilliant job over almost a decade now, I think, in creating this place. And uh, as I say, we're we're delighted to be 
the ultimate owner of the urban office component. I see this as on a par with Nordelec, actually. It doesn't have the scale Nordelec has, but it is as singular, as special. Um, and, uh, and as I say, we're proud to be uh, or to become the owner of this urban office environment that is part of a, I think, a, an emerging neighborhood in Montreal that is that is going to be one of the finest in the country. You know, and it'll, it'll accommodate people who live there, it'll accommodate people who work there, and it'll accommodate yeah, retail uses to serve those burgeoning populations. It's awesome. I love it. I love, I think old Montreal is a continental treasure of untold importance. And to me, we're right on the Eastern edge of old Montreal. It, it, and, and there's so much going on to, you know, further East. It, it's unbelievable. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to be part of it. Excellent, excellent acquisition. Uh, well, I, I guess that really does bring us to to the end here. First of all, I want to thank Brian for coming riding shotgun with me. Appreciate that. And want to thank both you, Michael and Tom, for joining us as well. It's been a pleasure talking to you as it normally is. Uh, and we only hope that we can have many more conversations about many more projects and exciting uh, forays uh, in the future. So... Uh, Thanks a lot. Uh, yep. Thank you both. Merci. Have a great day, Colin and Brian. Yeah, thank you both. It's It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Collier's Talks podcast. To learn more about Collier's Canada, our experts, and our solutions, visit colliers.canada.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.